Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 24th, 2020, right now. And once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have Truthfits here with us to discuss the next few of his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. Truthfits, thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh. Uh, yeah, today we could get into uh, a lot more of the Old Testament. And uh, this this is something that's always neglected. Um, you know, I don't want to keep bringing it up. But for example, in British Israel and other Christian identity circles that they really won't emphasize um, all, all the prophets, um, you know, all the verses and all the proof that the whole Bible is about the white race and that it can only be us the European people, and, you know, this adds another mountain of evidence, and when people really see it, it just makes it unquestionable, and uh, our opponents, all they can do then is just slander us, because they can't challenge any of this, so, yeah, I'm really excited, uh, we could start with Daniel today, right, one of the major prophets, and he really hits home on all the Adamic empires that existed, uh, white empires, and it gradually leads into Israelite empires. So you can see the transition from the Adamic people gradually, you know, dying, essentially race mixing into oblivion, and all that's left is Israelites. Right, Bill? Well, well right. That's absolutely true. I mean, there are elements of the um, Jepethite and the other Shemite, and probably some of the Hamitic tribes in Europe, at least at an early time. For instance, the Ionian Greeks were um, were from Javan, as it's spelled in Genesis chapter 10. That's Iowan or Yawan or Yawana in Hebrew and in Persian inscriptions. Yawana is Ionian in, in the West, and they were Jepethites, so so you had the Etruscans, but but even they have have um, lost their tribal identity, their ancient tribal identity. The Etruscans were from Lydia, from ancient Western Anatolia originally. So these tribes, there might be um, elements of whites in Europe who were descended from these tribes, at least in part. But they've all lost their tribal identities and, and are basically absorbed into the Germanic and Slavic nations of Europe. And that they, we can't tell who is who any longer. It, it's quite difficult. For instance, even if you're in an, even if you're from Tuscany in Italy, if you're from northern Italy and you think you might be part Etruscan or whatever. Well, well, you know, the Lombards and other Celtic tribes have been dwelling in that land for 2,500 years now. So you're probably not Etruscan any longer. You're probably a Germanic Celt. Or, or I mean, I know it sounds odd to call Celts Germanic, but... The Celts and, and the Germanic tribes are basically have one and the same origin. And the Galatahi or Gauls were often 
related to the Celts. So the lines between Celts and Germans in in Germany and and along the Danube River basin are are basically confused. You you can't even make a distinction there. Okay. The importance of the historians, you know, we spoke about Josephus and the Greek historians last week, like Strabo and Diodorus Siculus, and we spoke about the Assyrian inscriptions before that. Well, well, one thing, I don't know if I got across clear enough, was that if you read through something like Diodorus Siculus from one end to the other, you'll realize that, that the painting drawn, if I could put it this way, the tapestry woven by a historian like Theodore Siculus or a geographer. Strabo was basically a geographer. Even though he was a historian in his own right, he wrote a geography, which is a description of all the people that he knew in the world and where they lived and some of their habits and customs and a little of their background history. When you read these, the entire tapestry they draw draws a picture of white civilization as it existed 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. And you can't get around the, the fact that they don't really distinguish physical characteristics such as skin color and hair color very often. But Diodorus did note the black, flat-nosed, woolly-headed people in Egypt and, and Ethiopia. So if there was any such element in Syria or in Southern Europe or, or any marked contrast in the appearance of peoples, perhaps Theodorus Siculus would have mentioned it once or twice, but he never did. He never mentioned it. And, and it's the same thing with Strabo, as if some Syrians were black. Well, of course, that means there were no black Syrians. So if there were any marked contrasts in the, the European people of his time, in their appearance, you'd think he would have noted it. But he never did. That this talk about the Galatahi or, or the Germanic people being a little taller than the Romans, that could be ascribed to simple dietary issues. That they that they they made milk their primary a primary element in their diet and had a lot more calcium as they were as they were developing. That that's where the Greeks made fun of the Scythians for being milk eaters. Because the Greeks didn't typically I mean they ate some cheese and evidently, the early Greeks didn't drink any milk because they, they, they poked fun of the Scythians for drinking milk. Now, did they drink no milk at all? I really don't know. But it wasn't a large part of their diet, so they didn't have the same stature. We know that today, but they didn't know that back then. That They didn't understand calcium and, and milk products in, related to nutrition. I'm sure. So it seems to me that was the reason why the Germans were taller, why the Celts were taller, 
and also why they uh, try to make us all vegans now, right? <laughs> just a little side comment. No meat, no milk, <laughs> just live on vegetables. Yeah, right. And that produces a race of, of, of 110-pound soy boys. That's exactly what it does. So, okay. Bill, sorry, just, just before we start. Um, so, Jeremiah, he was in Jerusalem, right? Uh, Daniel was in Babylon. And Ezekiel, was he with another uh, fringe of Israelites somewhere else who had been deported? Am I right there? Yes, and and sometimes I get confused myself, right? Ezekiel, I may have said that he was in an Assyrian deport, an Assyrian captivity at one point, and that's remotely possible. But looking at the text of Ezekiel, I'm leaning towards the fact that he was in the Babylonian captivity. The, the confusion is where he says in the opening of his book, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, I was among the captives by the river of Kabar. Now, that might, that, that could be the Habor, okay, the river Habor of the book of Nezar. That's what it seems to be. But it also seems to be that Habor was mentioned in the Assyrian captivities of Israel, right? And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan. So whether Ezekiel was in the Assyrian or in the Babylonian captivity, is up for grabs. It, it's debatable to at least some extent. But it really doesn't matter except that what Ezekiel meant by that 30th year, it could have been the 30th year of his life or it could have been the 30th year of captivity for his particular tribe because there are some unreported captivities not all the captivities are listed in the Bible, and not all the captivities have been preserved in the Assyrian inscriptions. Now, some captivities, as we illustrated, are actually mentioned in both the scripture and the Assyrian inscriptions, and some aren't. So maybe he was referring to the 30th year of his own life, but his, the historic part of his prophecy the historic background is set in verse 2 of Ezekiel chapter 1, where he says, in the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of Jehoiachin's captivity. So if Ezekiel is in Babylonian captivity, he is still intimately familiar with what is going on in Jerusalem and what happened to Jehoiachin because he himself would not have been taken until the reign of Jehoiakim, which was the, um, I believe, the first time that the Babylonians took captives from Jerusalem. If he's in, in the Assyrian captivity, then he must have still been somewhere in Mesopotamia, close enough to Babylon to have news of what was happening in Jerusalem. But I'm starting to lean towards the fact that he was probably in an early Babylonian captivity 
and settled by the Kabar, referring to a river in Babylonia, which Kabar was evidently a name for the royal canal of Nebuchadnezzar, according to some of the lexicons. So that could be where Ezekiel was, and that's fine. So Ezekiel's in captivity, and he's writing his prophecy at the same time, practically, that Jeremiah is in Jerusalem writing his. And they're both, they both have marked differences from one another, but they're both writing about the same general themes and the same events, and they're both prophesying the same general events, which is the ultimate um, captivity of Judah and destruction of Jerusalem. Daniel was taken into Babylonian captivity with the chief men and princes of Jerusalem who were taken by Nebuchadnezzar when he first came against Jerusalem early in his rule. So Daniel was taken into captivity, and he was a very young man at the time. And he lived a very long time. Daniel probably lived well into his 80s because he was still alive in the early years of Persian rule in Babylon, which were from 539 BC. So Daniel seems to have been taken into captivity sometime shortly before 600 BC and was in captivity in Babylon for over 60 years. So he was probably well into his 80s when, when he finally passed. Those are who we are going to discuss today, I pray, Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and prophecies from them, which help to prove and help to establish the identity of the children of Israel in the white nations of Europe. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is point number 34, I believe. I couldn't believe we were this far along um, in only 11 weeks. <laughs> I'm kind of teasing about that because we had originally envisioned finishing this whole series in 10 or 12 weeks, did we not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 10 parts per week, I think that went out the window after the yeah, first one. I'm sorry I talked too much. There's a lot of digressions. I think there's a lot of important points to get across. Because once you study all this information to, to the level of death of the Syrian inscriptions and Diodorus Siculus and, and, and the events they describe and correlating all that with scripture, it, it's impossible to think that these children of Israel were of any other race except ours. And that leads us right into proof number 34, and that's the beast empires prophesied to come after Nebuchadnezzar and where they ruled. And when you read the language of this beast, which, which Nebuchadnezzar, of which Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, and Daniel's interpretation of his vision, which is scripture, it's the prophetic word of God, then you'll realize that they had to be. This had to describe Europe. This can't describe anything else. And when I say Europe in this sense, I include Anatolia 
because it was all of European-related ethnicity at that time, and also Mesopotamia. So, while other prophets of the Bible and the history which they had foretold are all proven to be true in their own ways, nowhere among the Old Testament prophets is history foretold in such a clearly identifiable manner as it is in Daniel. And for that reason, biblical critics always try to push Daniel forward to a date much later than the time in which the book was written, or in which the book claims that it was written. The internal evidence in the book helps serve to prove that Daniel wrote it when the book claims it was written in the 6th century BC because Daniel has been justified by archaeology. For example, in Daniel chapter 4, we read the words of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, where it says in verse 30, the king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Now, the book of Nezar II was the king of Babylon for a long time, from about 605 BC to 562 BC. After him, the Babylonian Empire lasted for only another 23 years until it was conquered by the Persians in 539 BC. But from the time when the Greeks started writing history, starting with Herodotus, the ancient historians who mentioned Babylon all believed that the city was built by Semiramis. Semiramis was a mythical, a semi-mythical figure, apparently based on an Assyrian queen who lived in the 8th century BC. In the Persian period, about 100 years after the Nezar, Herodotus even visited Babylon and described its wonders in his writing. But he never mentioned the Nezar, not even once, even though he was only 100 years later. So while Babylon was an ancient city, far more ancient than, than the Nezar, the surviving Greek histories do not mention the fact that it was rebuilt at least several times, and Herodotus only alluded to other kings and one other queen who came after Semiramis, whom he had said contributed to its building, while he gave the greatest credit to the two queens, to the two women. So it is evident that Greeks, especially those of the later Hellenistic period, during which critics claim that Daniel was written, they were ignorant concerning the book of Nezar. So any contributions of Nebuchadnezzar to the building of Babylon were unknown to the Greeks after the beginning of the Persian period. Yet archaeologists have uncovered many inscriptions and even the bricks of the walls themselves, which do attest that Nebuchadnezzar had built, or actually rebuilt, the city of Babylon. Flavius Josephus refuted the legends of Semiramis concerning Babylon, and he was citing the now-lost writings of a 3rd century Babylonian historian named Berossus. That would be 3rd century B.C., of course. 
but the citations offer little more than what is already recorded in Scripture. The Greek writers seem to have been ignorant of Barosis. In any event, the words of Nebuchadnezzar, recorded in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, affirm that the prophet had this knowledge, which has been confirmed to us through archaeology. So unless one can imagine somehow that Daniel copied from this later Barosis, which is sheer conjecture, this is one significant proof that Daniel must have been written when Daniel tells us that he had written in the very days of the Chaldean kings of Babylon. Daniel was also mentioned three times by Ezekiel in chapters 14 and 28. Ezekiel was also a prophet of the captivity, who was a contemporary of Daniel and who started recording his own prophecy just a little later than the events recorded in the opening of Daniel chapter 1. But Daniel's prophecy could not have been published for many years after Ezekiel was written. So that, help, that understanding helps to establish that Daniel was already notable among the captives as Ezekiel was writing, unless you want to imagine that Ezekiel was speaking of some other unknown Daniel, which is also sheer conjecture. So you have to conjecture a lot in order to imagine that Daniel did not write his book in the 6th century BC. There are other things which Daniel knew and which he foreknew that are revealed throughout his book that also help to establish this as fact. The critics can make innovative arguments insisting that the authorship of Daniel be pushed into the future, but they cannot push it far enough into the future to discredit the foreknowledge of many later historical events revealed in the prophecies of Daniel. One of those historical events is the succession of empires and the ultimate fall of them all described in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar found in Daniel chapter 2. I don't know so if this is where they always um, try to undermine and chip away so that they can try and remove books, right? Uh, just like they try and um, make Paul some heretic uh, so they can just try and remove him, essentially. It's the same bag of tricks that the Jews always use, right? Absolutely. To undermine faith in Scripture, to undermine faith in the unity and consistency of Scripture, to undermine faith in the prescience of the prophets, they've always endeavored to do that. So they'll push Daniel into the 3rd century BC, but they can't really push him far enough to make him a copyist of Barosis. And they can't push him far enough to be able to describe, as he did, the coming of the Roman Empire to replace the Greek Empire. Nobody in the 3rd century BC would have imagined that Rome was going to rule over the world. That thought didn't even become possible until after the outcome of the Punic Wars with Carthage. 
and 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 then there were the wars against the Macedonians. And it wasn't one Punic War. There were three Punic Wars to settle that. And they started in the mid-3rd century BC. And there wasn't one Macedonian War. I, I think if memory serves me correctly, there were three Macedonian Wars before it was finally settled that Rome would rule over the Macedonians. And if we understand who the Macedonians were, well, Alexander the Great was a Macedonian. His generals were Macedonians. The Ptolemies that ruled Egypt were Macedonians or Macedonians. The, the Seleucids who ruled Syria were Macedonians. No one envisioned their fall in the third century BC. They were that powerful at that time. So even yeah, if and, Daniel... Um wasn't written until the 3rd century B.C., okay, well, you know what? <clears throat> he prophesied the passing of Alexander's empire and the coming of Rome in this vision, in his own words. But it's very clear, once you understand, the vision and, and his interpretation. Yeah, There's and Rome no... lost so many times. Uh, they must, every battle, like Hannibal, as you said, with... Um... The Carthage was Hannibal defeated them endless times. They lost hundreds of thousands of soldiers and in many other wars, and they just kept bouncing back constantly. And somehow they ended up ruling all of Europe, right? Exactly. Only the will of Yahweh could, could make that happen. Exactly. Rome came to power against all odds. Hannibal, when he marched his armies through... Um, parts of Gaul and marched them over the Alps, he lost so many animals and soldiers in the Alps on account of the cold. I don't think they could have been prepared for the cold and, and the danger of passing through the Alps. But even with that, he came very close to destroying Rome and defeating the Romans for good in Italy. And it was a very protracted war that the best historian, ancient historian to read for that is Polybius, who tells the entire story and who was actually an eyewitness to great to, to large parts of the Punic Wars. Yeah, essentially, um, the people in power in Carthage were too worried that Hannibal was getting too powerful. And then that caused their downfall, essentially. Yes, they did have some, some um, divisions amongst themselves. That is true. Okay. In the book, in, in Daniel chapter 2, the book of Nezar, the king, had a dream which evidently disturbed him greatly, and he sought its meaning among the seers and wise men of his time. Yet the only one who could venture to help him was Daniel. This evidently was also the event in Daniel's life which earned him renown sufficient enough for him to have been mentioned by Ezekiel because these events in Daniel's life early on established Daniel's reputation as a very wise man and as a prophet. So we read in part from Daniel chapter 2, and, and we're only going to present and discuss the later parts of this, 
and skip over a lot of the um, peripherals and, and even a lot of the details that are unnecessary for our discussion. From Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest, till that a stone was cut out without hands which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold, broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, that is the vision which the Nebuchadnezzar had seen, and now we will read Daniel's interpretation of the vision. The Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't tell anybody the vision because he wanted to prove that they were actually seers and could relate the vision so that he could believe their interpretation. So Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, and, and that must be what Nebuchadnezzar had seen. The proof of that is in the interpretation of the prophecy and how clearly it describes subsequent history. So now we will read Daniel's interpretation from verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. He's the emperor, right? For the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, has he given into thine hand and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold, the head of gold in the vision of the beast. And after thee, after his passing, there, after thee shall arise another kingdom, not another king, another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. In other words, the kingdom of iron is going to break in pieces and bruise and subdue all the kingdoms that were before it. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. 
And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. And that word for men there isn't Adam, it's Enosh. Even as iron is not mixed with clay, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, meaning the four kingdoms of the beast, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and, and the iron, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God had made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. I don't know if you have any comments before I begin to discuss this interpretation. Yeah, yeah, I had a few questions. So, so first of all, it says um, uh, another kingdom after thee, but will be inferior. So, so that means Babylon was actually a greater kingdom than Persia, right? Uh, from that interpretation. Evidently, it does. That now, in in one aspect, that speaking is hard to grasp. The Persians attempted to subdue the, the Scythians, the Saka, and, and of course they failed. Cyrus the Great lost his life in 530 BC in a war against the Scythians, which Nebuchadnezzar had evidently ruled over while they were under the dominion of, of Assyria, and Nebuchadnezzar had ascended to the position of empire that was held by the Assyrians. The Babylonians... So perhaps by the time of Persia, um, all these little surrounding nations were getting stronger and stronger, and, and Persia could no longer rule over them. Yes, or they were migrating and, and, and becoming more independent and, and larger themselves, and that is, that, that is true. That seems to be true. The Persian Empire didn't last long. It lasted longer than the Babylonian, but it was overtaken by the Parthians. And, and the Parthians were never really um, under Roman dominion. They had their own empire. But the Romans had taken pieces of territory that they claimed. And the Romans had subdued the Parthians to the point where the Parthians lost many battles. They won some battles, but they lost many battles to the Romans. They, that they ultimately lost what we call Armenia today. And they really never overcame or defeated the Romans. They could never stop the Romans. Eventually, I, I believe the Romans would have also invaded Parthia and destroyed it if they had kept their power, but it just wasn't meant to be. Any extent yes, of... Yes, even uh, um, Julius Caesar was going to launch a massive invasion. I think some something ridiculous, like 10 or 20 legions into Parthia, but obviously that was not meant to be, as uh, he was killed by all the senators. 
Um, and, and also it says that the Alexander's kingdom would rule the whole earth. So, so that really shows you that um, Alexander had tremendous power. As you said, he even had influence all the way over in Italy and Iberia, right? It wasn't just the East. He had tremendous power at his height. Yes, absolutely. Alexander the Great did rule over the Parthians, and he did rule over all the Persians. But by the time of the Roman Empire, the center of, of Western civilization actually shifted west, and, and Spain and, and Gaul and northern Italy and Germany were much more populous than they were at the time of Alexander. The, these, the, these Galatahi, these tribes of the Galatahi, and, 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 well, the Scythians, who are the Galatahi, or the Galatahi are a migration of the Scythians, let's put it that way, that, that whom the Romans called Gauls, that they had um, become much more populous in the West by the time of Rome than they had been in the days of Alexander, even though after the time of Alexander, they did very often threaten the, the peace and, and invade parts of parts of the Greek cities and in Anatolia. And that's how the Galatahi came into Anatolia in the third century BC, about 50 to 80 years after the time of Alexander, I believe, and attacked the kingdom of Pergamus, which was an autonomous kingdom under the um, Greek kings of Syria. And they attacked the kingdom of Pergamus and had actually been defeated and forced to settle in what's called Gal what became known as Galatia. But in ancient times, most of what we know as Galatia was actually ancient Phrygia. So, so that that's um, it, it's a difficult history to summarize in short. But the Galatahi were much more populous populous in the West in times of Rome than they had been in the times of Alexander. That There are other theories on why Alexander was killed in Babylon and why he sought to go to India that I probably shouldn't get into here, that it's too much of a digression. But he had actually, Alexander actually conquered all the way to the Indus River and Sogdiana and, and Bactria, which were um, kingdoms of the Sake to the north of what we would call modern-day Afghanistan. So he controlled a, a greater extent to the east than the Romans did, but the Romans had controlled more of the territory in the west than Alexander did. The, um, the Roman extent, the extent of the Roman Empire at the time of Trajan, that, that Trajan, that's about 117 AD, I believe, when Trajan died. He brought the Roman Empire to its greatest geographical extent. And in the east, they ruled over Mesopotamia and much of the former Assyrian territory that was east of Mesopotamia, including um, that that would include all of Babylonia, 
but it would also include land east of Babylonia. Adiabene was east of Babylonia and, and several other districts and cities that that actually went into the ancient district of Elam, which was Elam is the biblical term that's always translated as Persia. The Greeks recognized it in Strabo as Elamese. So the Romans did hold a lot of the territory that was formerly Persia and the Persian Empire. The Persians never got that back until they defeated, they, they, the Parthians ruled over the Persians for, for centuries. I, I believe they never got that back until the fourth century or, or even maybe after the fall of Rome. I'm, I'm a little sketchy on the history of Persia in the early Christian era. But the Parthians had ruled over Persia for 500 years, maybe. And, and the Persians ultimately had regained control and recovered land probably as far west as the Tigris, but I don't think they ever recovered land beyond that. And, and this um, iron, that's the white race, and the clay is the, the mud people, essentially, right? And the clay destroys the white race. And uh, you can see that the civilizations that you just described kept shifting away more to the west, away from the clay. And the clay is always chasing the iron. And, and that's what brought down Rome, right? As it says, it started to mingle. They brought in all these slaves into Rome and the clay destroyed the iron over time, right? Well, well that is true. And, and I believe that. And that's the way I interpret that. The clay isn't necessarily all, quote-unquote, mud people. There are um, mixed-race Egyptians. There are some mixed-race Egyptians in Rome, in, in Italy, and, and in Sicily at that early time. There's, um, in the remnants of Vesuvius and some other archaeology, that there's paintings of these mixed-race Egyptians, mixed-race Arabians, and, and they're dark in complexion in Rome. And some of them were merchants, and, and some of them did very well in Rome. And that's that. these portraits that have been discovered by archaeologists, they are held up today by these... Um, by, by these race-mixing egalitarian academics that we have as an ideal or as a norm. And they weren't a norm, they were an exception. If you actually read Livy and, and read Tacitus and the histories and their descriptions of, of Romans, that these mixed-race people found by archaeologists in, in Italy and, and Sicily, that they're an exception, they're not a norm. In any event, that the, and I'll get more into the iron and the clay later. It's evident that the iron, where it says they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, that the iron are the children of Israel. And we can't really see that in the prophecy, but the children of Israel, or the true Adamic people, who have these mixed races among them, which are not non-white necessarily, but a lot of Canaanites and a lot of Edomites, a, a lot of the um, Edomites in Jerusalem, the Judeans, they were called, were taken into slavery in Rome and in southern Italy after the 
Judean Wars, and again, these bastards at Alexandria that we saw Polybius and Strabo describe after the Kedos War, which was a later uprising of the Judeans, in, in, especially in Egypt and in the islands of the Mediterranean, against the Romans, which happened in, in um, about 130 to 140 AD in, in that period. There were three rebellions. That There was the Judean Wars of 65 to 70, after which Jerusalem was destroyed. And then 50 years later, there was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion against Rome, which was put down. And then there was the Kedos War against Rome. And all three of them were wars of, of these Judeans, or Jews, we could call them by then, against the Romans. So this was protracted over the first and early second centuries. And a lot of others were taken into slavery and taken back into Italy, into the toes, right? And we'll discuss the toes, and, and sold as slaves. For many centuries, first, for many centuries, apologists for the Roman Catholic Church have offered interpretations of this vision that twist its meaning in order to make the church itself the fifth empire or kingdom of Daniel's vision, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Daniel's interpretation, right? But the meaning of the interpretation is clear as it is compared to actual history and Daniel cannot be pushed so far into the future as to discredit the prescience which is evident in this prophecy. Thou art this head of gold. If Nebuchadnezzar is the part of the beast represented by the head of gold, then the other three parts of the beast, kingdoms which would arise after him, must be the empires which succeeded his own, and the other parts of the beast must represent those empires. But before Daniel explains the four parts, he makes a few revealing statements, revealing statements which must first be discussed. First, wheresoever the children of men. The word for men is not Adam, which refers to a particular race but Enosh, which refers to man more generally. Evidently, this is because not all of the nations over which this beast would rule were actually Adamic. But where it says a few verses later that the beast shall rule over all the earth in conjunction with wherever the children of men dwell, the scope of the vision is nevertheless limited to that of the Adamic world. None of these empires, none of these beasts, or, or parts of this beast, ever ruled over China. Then where it says, even further on, of the toes of the fourth part of the beast, that they shall crumble because they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, the word for men is once again Enosh. And we see, therefore, that the aforementioned iron and clay must represent two different types of men or that statement would make no sense. Ostensibly, the Adamic and the non-Adamic, which would be the descendants of the Nephilim, the Kenites, the Rethane, the Canaanites, and other mixed races among them. 
the Egyptians had been mixed with the Nubians at this time. Not the Macedonian Egyptians, but the native Egyptians. Many Arabs may have already mixed with Nubians by this time, even though we don't really have a clear picture of that in history until the Muslim period, the Islamic period. But Nebuchadnezzar, being the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire was supplanted by that of the Persians and Medes. And at first, the Persians were subject to the Medes. But in the time of Cyrus, that situation was reversed, and the Medes became subject to the Persians. However, even then, the Greek authors, especially the tragic poets, often referred to the Persians themselves as Medes, rather than as Persians. As for Cyrus himself, Herodotus called him a mule, because his father was a Persian prince, but his mother was the daughter of the king of the Medes. So we can see that the part of the beast which was of silver was, was the Persian Empire, which had two arms, Media and Persia. Next was the part of brass, which represents the empire of Alexander. And finally, the part of iron, which must be the Roman Empire, which followed that of Alexander. Now, the Roman Empire is described as two legs. Later in Roman history, Rome did have two legs, the first being the, the capital city of Rome, and the later being when the capital was moved to Constantinople. So after the fall of this last empire, you'll see that Daniel said that part would be strong and part broken. Well, the part that remained strong was that based in Constantinople, but the part that was broken was that based in Italy. So this clearly describes the, the Roman Empire, which is the next empire in succession after the empire of Alexander. Even though Alexander's empire was split into four pieces, it was still the same beast. It was still Macedonian. The ten toes ostensibly represent the ten provinces of the Roman people during the time of their empire. The, in the Roman government, there were ten senatorial provinces wherein actions taken by the emperor had to be approved by the Roman Senate because those provinces belonged to the Roman people. But then there were many other provinces However, they were imperial provinces controlled exclusively by the emperor as they had been conquered by the emperors. When Rome fell, it was the ten toes that crumbled and much of the rest of the empire remained intact for some time later under the Byzantines. The Byzantine historian Procopius described the city of Rome itself as having become virtually deserted for a long time, and Italy became divided politically, never again to be fully united until the late 19th century, a period of over 1,400 years. This succession of empires 
was prophesied to rule over all the earth. And that would include many of the descendants of the children of Israel. But the children of Israel themselves, as it was they who were promised a new kingdom, would ultimately destroy and supplant these beast empires. The Roman Catholic Church did not destroy these empires. Rather, the church itself was a product of the Roman Empire. When we look at the tribes who contributed to and ultimately brought about the fall of Rome, besides the internal corruption, the moral decay, and, and other problems which the empire suffered, we see all of the Germanic tribes, the so-called Huns, the Goths, the Vandals, and others, were indeed the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. The Swebi, the Angles, the Saxons, they all had a part in this. They were the stone cut out of the mountains without hands, which broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. When Rome fell, the Swebi, the, the, the Vandals, the Goths, the Huns, the, the Angles, the Saxons, they all, the Franks, they all inhabited parts of the former empire, territories that were controlled by the Romans from England and, and Germany, west of the Rhine and, and south of the Danube and Gaul, that the Franks moved into Gaul, the, the Angles and Saxons moved into England, that the Huns were actually settled in Hungary, which we know today is Hungary, the Goths and, and the Vandals, the Vandals came into Italy and North Africa, crossed over into Carthage and occupied Carthage until the Islamic conquest destroyed them. And that the Goths had moved into um, Spain. I mean, a lot of Goths stayed in Germany, don't get me wrong, but many of the Goths moved into Spain and, and into Italy and Sicily and inhabited those places. And their descendants are still there today, even though they, in turn, to a great extent, in southern Spain and, and southern Italy, had been mixed with other races with the Islamic conquests. So there's something else going on there. But it was these tribes that poured into the Roman territory, Roman Empire, and destroyed it. So, so the um, mountain that would be the mountain of God, the the people of God, cr the body of Christ, uh, Those, essentially us, exactly. showing that us Germanic people are the Israelites and we e filled the whole world, right? Exactly. And that doesn't take away from earlier tribes of Israel, earlier divisions of the tribes of Israel that had occupied Italy, the Romans themselves, the, the Corinthians, the Dorian Greeks. That doesn't take away from them their identity as Israelites, but the stone cut out of the mountain without hands are those Germanic tribes that destroyed the Roman Empire. Only the Germanic people and not the Roman church could be the fifth and last kingdom of Daniel's interpretation because it is they who destroyed Rome. Yeah, that's the church trying to claim credit and make itself um, the, the fifth kingdom, right? Right. And there's a lot of, right, it did. It did try to do that, but it can't be. That the, um, 
the two entities overlapped in the Holy Roman Empire because the Holy Roman Empire was really German. It wasn't Roman at all. It was Germans who thought that they had to be Roman Catholics. So they called it the Holy Roman Empire, but it was German. All its kings were Germanic. And also Yahweh saying that our nations will last forever. Uh, that's an important point as well, right? Yes, that is an important point. And, and there's so much in Daniel that prophecies later history that we can't ever get into. I, I need to do a commentary on Daniel. Um, there is a loose one that I did years ago available at the archive website at Christagetia, but I, 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 I'm not really proud of it. it. It was a general discussion with somebody I used to work with that I won't even name here because he doesn't deserve any credit. But Someday I'll, I'll um, I, I plan on getting into a lot of aspects of Daniel when I re-present my Revelation commentary, I hope next year, but it, it, it takes a long time to expound all of these prophecies. Clifton had already done a lot of things on, on Daniel, on Daniel chapter 7, 8, that we got into together 20 years ago. The um, Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11 all contain very clear prophecies of things that were very clearly fulfilled in history that Daniel um, could be the most incredible book of the prophets and, and the most marvelous book of the prophets, I should say, because it's totally credible. And it, it's an amazing book. It really, It truly is. <clears throat> in in many aspects. And we'll talk about some of those aspects later in this presentation, I hope, if, if we get to them. But in any event, the Babylonian, Persian, Roman, and Greek empires all ruled over a great portion of the predominantly white world and maintained power and influence even over the extremities which they did not rule directly. For example, there were some Germanic tribes which remained out of reach of Rome, and there were the Parthians who had been under Persia, but who had resisted Rome. There were some developing nations in far Western Europe that were out of reach of Babylon or Persia, but in their respective ages, they were all inconsequential compared to the vast areas of the white Adamic world, which these empires did rule. And these empires never ruled over people of other races to any great degree. The, the, the mongrels in Egypt are inconsequential compared to the whole rest of Africa. These empires never ruled over the whole rest of Africa. The, 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 um, the, the yellow Chinamen are, are inconsequential compared to the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the mongrels that may have been on the eastern extremities of the empire at this early time are inconsequential compared to the vast hordes of yellow Chinamen, Asians, whatever you want to describe them as, that the empires did not rule over. So there may have been some mongrels on the fringes, some mixed races on the fringes, but these empires ruled over white people, over white civilization, over white society as it existed in their respective times and never ruled over other races.
except for a few yeah, inconsequential monks. Wherever we go, the civilization goes, right? And that um, uh, we are always the ones that empower these other races by trading with them and building them, you know, civilizations. And without us, they're nothing. Absolutely. And they were nothing throughout the entire time of these of these empires. Furthermore, even the Kenites, the Rephaim, the Canaanites would have appeared to be white. And, and the areas where non-white races were ruled over these by kings were inconsequential. At its greatest extent, which is in the time of Trajan, in the early 2nd century AD, which I just mentioned, and, and I'll include a map of the Roman Empire in the time of Trajan when I post this podcast at Christagenia, at its greatest extent, Rome ruled in Africa only as far south as Elephantine, an island in the Nile River, which was traditionally seen as the southernmost extent of Egypt. The rest of Roman Africa was only the thin strip, perhaps 100 miles deep in, in, at, at the most, the thin strip along the northern coast of Africa. Rome never ruled anywhere in Africa that, that was part of the Sahara Desert. And, and the blacks in Africa dwelt below the Sahara Desert, south of the Sahara Desert, except where they had come up into Ethiopia from Sudan and, and Egypt from Sudan, which in those days was called Nubia. So you can't say that well, wheresoever the children of men dwell is the territory, includes the aboriginal homelands of these other races. Because it doesn't. It's only the white race that's concerned here, that, that's being a, a sub, the subject of concern here, or the object of concern, I'm sorry. So, so these empires ruled over white people and... Therefore, those white people are the object of concern, where it says, wherever so, wheresoever the children of men dwell, and over the whole earth, that these empires would rule over the whole earth, that whole earth is the whole earth of the Adamic or the white race. And it doesn't go beyond that. Or these empires would have ruled the other races. Or God's a liar. And Daniel's no problem. Yeah, and what about all these other continents like um, America and Australia? It's, it's only when whites go there, it, it, suddenly it's a civilization, right? That the Bible doesn't even consider them. Precisely. Wherever whites are, that's the world. <laughs> Non-whites don't matter. And, and this proves that. Well, now we shall see. And, and, and first, let me say that where it says that this would happen in the days of these kings, we see the Germanic tribes migrating into Western Europe from the east in large numbers. And they would eventually form the core of what would become known as Christendom. And all of these circumstances taken together serves to prove beyond doubt their identity as the people of God. Historically, both Daniel's prescience and the truth of our Christian identity 
message are absolutely undeniable when we understand these prophecies of these beast empires in Daniel chapter 2. Now we shall see that it was these very same people for whom the new covenant was intended in the first place. But we must also keep in mind that by the time of the Babylonian captivities of Judah, which is roughly when Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel were all writing, most of Israel and Judah had long ago been taken into Assyrian captivity. Remember that the Assyrians came and, and they took captive, they destroyed and took captive the inhabitants of 46 fenced cities of Judah. And at one time, in one captivity, the, the one where the Assyrians were based in Lachish, that meant that they took captive, according to their own numbers, over 200,000 people of Judah went into Assyrian captivity. Only the inhabitants of Jerusalem were left behind. The inhabitants of Jerusalem were taken captive 120 years later by the Babylonians. But by the time of these prophecies, most of Israel and, and a great portion of Judah were long ago taken into captivity by the time these men are writing. So we'll start with Jeremiah. And Jeremiah prophecies the reunion of Judah and Israel and other prophecies under the New Covenant. We're going to um, focus here only on the prophecies of the New Covenant. In spite of the captivity, there are many promises of reconciliation between God and Israel seen in these prophets. In Daniel chapter 9, which contains an explicit promise of a Messiah and dates his incarnation, his future incarnation, I should say, one of the stated purposes of that is to make reconciliation for iniquity. And we'll discuss that later. So Paul of Tarsus, when he brought the gospel of Christ to the 12 tribes of Israel in Europe, he had preached what he himself had called the gospel of reconciliation on several occasions. In his epistles to the Corinthians, to the Colossians, he used that term. But this is evident right from the beginning chapters of Jeremiah. And explicitly, where we read in chapter 3, the prophet is told, go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return, thou backsliding Israel, saith Yahweh, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith Yahweh, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against Yahweh thy God and has scattered thy ways to the stranger under every green tree. And ye have not obeyed my voice, saith Yahweh. Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you. And even though he had put them off in divorce, he wasn't going to lose sight of them. And he promised in Hosea to remarry them. 
and them alone. And it says, I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The children of Israel were never destined to return to Palestine, but Yahweh did lead them, many of them, to new homes in the West, where they were later reconciled to him in Christ. But look at this, at, at this language in Jeremiah here in chapter 33, where it says that Yahweh wanted the children of Israel to acknowledge their iniquity and that they have transgressed against him. And then look at the promise of a Messiah in Daniel chapter 9, where it says that he had come to finish the transgression and to make an reconciliation for iniquity. So the Messiah is the only manner in which this transgression and iniquity of Israel could be undone, could be forgiven. And that is why Christ died for our sins. Well, you can't say our sins unless you're one of those children of Israel. Otherwise, you have no context. You have no part in any of this in, if, if you're of any other people. How can you have a context in this? How can you have, be included in this? It, it's like somebody from, um, from Mozambique claiming that they, that they should have the protections of, of the English Constitution or the American Constitution. How could that be? Where the hell did they come from? The American Constitution says that this is for us and our posterity. That there weren't a bunch of Mozambique witch doctors sitting in Philadelphia when those words were written. That's a digression, too. The most notable and the only explicit promise of a new covenant, where it is called a new covenant, is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says, from verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It doesn't say Judah and the Gentiles. It only says the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In other words, if you're not from their fathers, if you're not one of the children of their fathers, you don't belong in this equation. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. And that record of the broken covenant is recorded in Zechariah chapter 11. Although I was a husband unto them, just as we read in Jeremiah chapter 3, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and that includes Judah as well, but it doesn't say Judah explicitly here. That shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, where was the house of Israel that at this time when Jeremiah wrote these words? Well, in chapter three, he he 
said that they were in the north, in the north country. And, and Yahweh was, used him to beckon them to return to him. And he said, say these words towards the north, because that's where Israel had gone off into captivity. So um, that, that would have to be the Germanic tribes, right? And um, if, if Christianity was going to reunite these two people, and only one people in the whole world are actually Christian, the, the European people, then they must be this Israel and Judah, right? There's no other way it could possibly make sense. Absolutely. And, and it's, if you draw, if you take a map of the world and settle yourself, put, put a little dot in Jerusalem where Jeremiah was when those words were spoken and, and draw a line straight north, you end up in, in, in you, you have to skip over people that obviously are not Israelites and keep going north, right? And, and, and you have to skip over the, the Assyrians and, and the Hittites and, and other races that dwelt more immediately to the north. You got to keep going and you end up in Cappadocia where those white Syrians were and in the Black Sea and, and the Caucasus Mountains where the Scythians and the Sake were. Across the Euphrates, you end up on the other side of the Euphrates in the middle of all these Germanic people. These people became the Germanic tribes of later history and that, that's where you land. And that's the same places that the children of Israel, to where the children of Israel were brought captive by the Assyrians. And Josephus described them as an innumerable multitude beyond the Euphrates. But you just don't find an innumerable multitude of kikes in those regions or anywhere to the north at that time. You only find the Cymri, the, the Cimmerians, the Sake, the Scythians, those people that came from the tribes of the children of Israel at that time. That's who you find there. Later, Paul of Tarsus cited this very passage from Jeremiah chapter 31 in chapter 8 of his epistle to the Hebrews. But writing to the Romans in chapter 9 of that epistle, Paul professed that the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises are all for those who were already Israelites, not people who are becoming Israelites. They're all for the Israelites, whom he also called his kinsmen according to the flesh. So if Paul, writing around 58 AD, had said that these things were all for Israelites. And if Jeremiah explicitly stated that the new covenant was exclusively for Israelites, then how could they possibly be for anyone else? Something which neither Yahweh the Father, nor Yahshua Christ, nor his apostles had ever stated, ever, once. Paul believed that these things were only for Israelites. As he said, in both Romans and in Hebrews. And he said in Acts chapter 26 that his purpose was for the hope of the 12 tribes. So he brought his gospel specifically to white people in Europe. Is that a coincidence? 
Paul never brought his gospel to brown or black or red or yellow people anywhere. That somebody in the Christoginian chat last week had made an excellent quip that if Paul was supposed to go to other races and didn't, then why wasn't he swallowed by a whale? In other words, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and he didn't want to. So he was swallowed by a whale and brought to Nineveh. He had no choice but to go. But Paul, he was never swallowed by a whale and brought to Zimbabwe <laughs> or, or the Ivory Coast or Senegal or, or whatever whatever um, coastal hellhole there was at the time where you might find some niggers. He was never brought to those places. They'd he was, probably have eaten him, right? Yeah, yeah, right. They would have eaten him. Just like they ate generations of, of medieval missionaries. They would have ate Paul too. After his experience on the road to Damascus, Paul spent three years in Arabia. And he never thought to preach the gospel to the Arabians or to Egyptians or to go to Sudan or Ethiopia to preach to black or brown people. Paul described wanting to go west to Spain. But he never once mentioned wanting to go east to India or into China. And the Greeks knew about China. They knew what was there. There is no epistle of Paul to the Hottentots, Mandingos, Hutsus, Tutsis, and not even to Ethiopians or Egyptians. Paul, the apostle to the so-called Gentiles, was concerned only with white Europeans and an Italian Gentiles. He wasn't concerned with anybody else. Anatolia being modern Turkey, which the Greeks called it Anatolia, because that was the land of the East, that, that describes the rising of the sun. So you think he needed um, three years to, you know, with this new lens to re-examine the scriptures, so, so he realized that um, it was only um, white Israelites, right? Yes, I absolutely believe so. That That's what Paul spent those three years doing, was re-examining the scriptures in the light of the gospel of Christ. Yeah. Now we shall see the same theme in Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, who was writing in captivity, as we discussed. And we're going to um, discuss mostly the merging of two sticks into one, and other prophecies with the promise of a new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 37. And but Bill, have, sorry, um, the, the whole point is that's impossible, right? You can't uh, blend two sticks into one. That's something only Yahweh can do, right? And, and that's what he's going to do with uh, his uh, Israel and Judah who are split out. Well, well, right. That's absolutely true. And and if we try to graft two sticks into one, I mean, you might be able to say that you could graft an apple branch onto a pear tree. But what you end up with is a bastard tree, a violation of Yahweh's law. However, that apple branch is never going to spring a pear. Ever. And the rest of the pear tree is never going to grow apples. In Ezekiel chapter 34, let's start there. There is a description of lost sheep who had already wandered over the mountains. 
And that was the condition of the Israelites in captivity as Ezekiel was writing. Then in Ezekiel chapter 35, there was a description of Esau taking the vacant lands of Israel and Judah for himself, which happened during the Persian period. That was an early step in the 500-year process of Edomites ultimately becoming known as Jews. Because those Edomites, after those lands were vacated by the Assyrian deportations of the people of Israel and Judah, the Edomites moved up, that they had nothing to stop them, that they moved up into those lands on their own and inhabited them. Josephus describes their conversion to Judaism 500 years later. That was the beginning of the process. And that continues to confuse Christians today, even though it's prophesied in Ezekiel and spelled out in the pages of Flavius Josephus for fear of the Jews. The churches never taught it. They never taught it. So they don't really teach the Bible. And they certainly don't teach the Bible in its proper historical context. Then Ezekiel chapter 36 promises reconciliation for Israel as it continues to prophecy against Edom, the enemy who came to, as it says, possess the ancient high places, which are the places where the children of Israel used to commit idolatry. In verses 8 and 9, we read, But ye, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel. This is 120 years after the deportations, maybe 130 or 140 years after the beginnings of the Assyrian deportations of Israel. It's over 100 years after the fall of Samaria, when 23,000 Israelites from Samaria alone were taken into captivity, aside from all the other captivities by the Assyrians. So in verses 8 and 9 of Ezekiel chapter 36, long after Israel's in captivity, but ye, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and you shall be tilled and sown. They were tilled and sown into Central Asia and, and Europe. That's what they were told in sown. They became those Germanic tribes that ultimately migrated into Europe and destroyed that Roman Empire. It is not speaking of geographical mountains. It's speaking of the 12 tribes in captivity. They are the mountain of God, of prophecy. They are the Zion of prophecy. Then, after further promises of reconciliation with Israel, we arrive at Ezekiel chapter 37. So there is described a revival in the Valley of Dry Bones. And it says in verses 11 and 12, Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now a house is a family. And Ezekiel wasn't picturing any substitute Israelites in his time. That entire um, substitute theology of the church 
is a claim for the church to be Israel. That any member who joins the church from any race whatsoever becomes Israel. None of that is found in the Bible anywhere. Nowhere is that in the Bible. Not in one verse. It's a lie. It's a deception. It's a twisting of words in every respect. The house of Israel. Where are the dry bones of the house of Israel? They have to be identified. But you don't, you're not going to find them outside of Christianity. These are the bones of the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophecy and say unto them, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Now, that's not necessarily in Palestine, and we've already had that discussion that Israel had already been prophesied to move to a new land in the time of David and Samuel. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh. When I have opened your graves, this is a, a picture of the resurrection of Christ and the, the promise of eternal life that the children of Israel have in him. O oh, my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and performed it, saith Yahweh. In the days of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra, it is recorded that somewhat more than 42,000 Judeans, people of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, Judahites, had returned to Jerusalem upon the proclamation of Cyrus the king. But both here and in Jeremiah, as well as other post-captivity prophets, it is clear that Yahweh God knew where all the rest of the Israelites were, and he had never abandoned them. It is they alone who were promised this new covenant in Jeremiah, and now we shall see that here in Ezekiel. If they are not the later Europeans, the Germanic tribes, then we all need to throw away our Bibles, and we have no culture or religion worth saving. But thankfully, we know with all certainty that they are the later Europeans. They are the tribes who moved west into Europe for over a thousand years after the time when Ezekiel had written these words. And that is why the apostles went to them. These things weren't done by mistake. These things weren't done because God lost his people. How could God lose his people? How could that happen? <laughs> if we believe in a God, how could he just lose his people? When he made all these promises to them of what he would do to them. So the next yeah, thing he had we... his people, his wife, and then he just turned to um, the, the second best option, the Europeans, right, as a replacement wife. Yeah, right, a bunch of whores. I'll just give up my wife, the hell with her. I made all these promises to her, but screw it. I'll, I'll just forget about her and go get these strange people. That's not at all what happened. The church teachings are always in conflict with Scripture. At every turn, they're in conflict with Scripture. 
The next thing we read in Ezekiel chapter 37 is the parable of the two sticks and another promise of a new covenant. So we're going to read from verse 15, and, and I'll have some comments in between. The word of Yahweh came unto me again, saying, so this is a new and separate vision from the valley of dry bones, right? Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. So here, Judah, true Judah, is being identified as for the children of Israel, his companions, and so is Ephraim for the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people, Ezekiel being an Israelite, shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou shalt writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. Now, the tribes of the captivity were indeed united a long time later, over a thousand years later, in the Holy Roman Empire. And that Holy Roman Empire lasted for about another thousand years. But in reality, the Holy Roman Empire was always a Germanic empire. They truly became one stick in Christ, and they still are today. Even though we have many wars am amongst one another, and we've had many wars amongst one another throughout history, and there are other prophecies which indicate that that would happen. For instance, the curse upon David that the sword would always be in his house and, and the kings of Europe had always been making war against one another. So there are other prophecies in play, but they truly all became one stick in Christ in spite of the wars that we've had against one another. They were nevertheless all Christians united in Christ. Now, now where in history has um, such a collection of nations of any race all suddenly adopted the same religion, turned away from whatever they practiced formerly, their pagan religions, and they all adopted the same religion within a short time of, of one another, and most of them did it voluntarily. Some of them were compelled, but most of them adopted Christianity voluntarily. Where has that ever happened? Yeah, where, this where is um, God the shepherd leading his sheep, right? C coming down as a man and bringing all his sheep into one pen. Absolutely. That's the revival of that Valley of Dry Bones. And there are other learning prophecies, 
learning processes and prophetic threads which had to be fulfilled. But that that's the general result, is the creation of a Christian culture and, and a group of Christian nations because at the same time, while they were one stick, they were still the, the promises that they were going to be a company of nations and, and many nations. So even the Anglo-Saxons were eventually broken into a, a diverse assortment of, of different nations, America being primarily originally Anglo-Saxon, um, Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada. So aside from the Germanic nations, which many of which are still in Europe, and, and the other descendants of the Israelites who were not Germanic, we were inevitably going to be many nations and a company of nations, but at the same time, we're all united in our religious belief, in our Christianity, so that we became Christendom. Continuing with Ezekiel, and say unto them, under these two sticks. Now remember, and, and I have to, I need another digression, right? These instructions that the prophets were given from God, they actually went and announced these things to the people. That's what we're seeing here in Ezekiel. Yahweh wants Ezekiel to go out to the people that he knows are Israelites, his fellow captives, and announce these things to them. And at this time, if regardless of which captivity Ezekiel was involved in, let, let's, let, let's assume it's correct that he was a Babylonian captive in Babylonia. If he had gone to the people of Judah, who had been taken captive with him, and announced these things to him, they'd have probably thought he was nuts. Because they hadn't seen any of the house of Israel for at least 120 years. So it's like, how are we going to be reunited? We're not even like in the same general area. So that's why Yahweh told him that when they ask him, what do you mean by this? That's why he gave them further instructions explaining what he meant by it and telling him to write it. So that's why we see that, because these prophets actually did announce these things to the people, and then the things were recorded in these books. Continuing from verse 21, Ezekiel chapter 37, and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, now literally that's nations, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, which are not necessarily in Palestine. They weren't in Palestine at all. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. In other words, they won't be, it'll come to a point where they're not going to be pagans any longer. 
But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. Now, how did all of Europe convert to Christianity? Most of it willingly? How did that happen? It's, it's explained right here in Ezekiel chapter 37. Historically, this is what happened. So the children of Israel. And who was the one king who would rule over them? That has to be Christ, God. Right. It's absolutely Christ. And, and the next verses in the prophecy will prove that. The children of Israel, long after their captivity, would continue to be the people of God. And he mentions no other people. They would be taken from among the other nations where they had been scattered and once again become a distinct people under their God. That only happened in the Germanic migrations into Europe from Mesopotamia and Asia. So now that is also described as David. Now, now the, the actual physical King David was dead for about 400 years by the time Ezekiel wrote this. So David here is a type. He's a type for Christ. And this is evident in other prophets and in the Psalms as well, that David is a type for the coming Christ in this regard. And Ezekiel continues, and it says, and a type is a model, right? It, it's a model or an example of something. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. The children of Israel returning to the commandments of Yahweh from Exodus chapter 20 when they turn to Christianity. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Now, finally, the promise of a new covenant that is the new covenant as it is directly related to Christ. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Now, it's not explicitly called a new covenant, but it must be a new covenant because the old covenant is broken. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen, or nations, shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. And where it says, the heathen shall know, that word for heathen is literally nations. It could refer to the actual nations of Israel alone, or it could refer to the other Adamic nations, which are elsewhere promised to share in the resurrection. So they will see it. So the tribes of Israel, along with the tribes of Judah, were prophesied to be fully reunited in the gospel of Christ under a new covenant. But none of this includes the people of Judea who rejected Christ, who are the 
ancestors of today's Jews. Paul did not call them his kinsmen according to the flesh, but rather he explained that not all of they were of Israel, not all of they who were of Israel were actually Israelites. As we already explained in the histories, they were Edomites. And for that reason, Paul goes on in that same place, in that same chapter, as he said those things, to compare Jacob and Esau. And he called the, the, the descendants of Jacob vessels of mercy and the descendants of Esau vessels of destruction. The Jews, those, the descendants of those who denied Christ, they are of Esau, as the histories prove and as Romans chapter 9 proves. Yeah, and all throughout history, they've never accepted Christ ever. As you've said many times, how many generations now? 80, 100, they always rejected him. From the 16th century. And, 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 and the Jews, and, and I've already proven in other venues that, that this idea of replacement theology that the Roman Catholic Church adopted, it came from the Jews. It came from Judeans who had converted to Christianity in Alexandria in Egypt and in Samaria and, and, and Jerusalem in Palestine. Justin Martyr was the first Christian writer to believe in this replacement theology idea, which is really screwy when you read the Bible. Replacement theology is not in Scripture. It's not apostolic Christianity, but apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence in, in the first and the early second centuries AD. And it was this replacement theology sort of Christianity, which was universalist, that took its place and started to take its place as early as Justin Martyr who was probably writing about 160 A.D. But Justin Martyr was a Platonist who had a student of Plato, a student of the Greek philosophers, who, who had learned his Christianity in Samaria from people from Jerusalem who evidently, who, who evidently had an agenda. And, and the Alexandrian Judeans or Jews that converted to Christianity, taught the same replacement theology. And it's evident in, in Origen and in Clement of Alexandria. But it's not apostolic Christianity. The apostles were all going to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, as it says in James, to the hope of, for the hope of our fathers, our 12 tribes, as Paul said in Acts chapter 26. And similar statements can be found in other writings of the apostles, even if they don't mention 12 tribes explicitly. It's in Peter. It's in Jude. And of course, it's in the words of Christ in the gospel, who came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Those same lost sheep described in Ezekiel chapter 34. That's where they're lost. And this brings us to Daniel and, and our final proof this evening that this is proof number 37 now, Daniel and, and his prophecy of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem. There is a messianic prophecy 
in Daniel chapter 9. And I don't know if you have any comments before I start on this. I should probably take a breather. Um, yeah, yeah. It was mostly that, um, well, that the, the obviously um, the people then didn't understand that the Romans were Israelites, right? And many people today don't. But once you realize this, that um, the Romans are Israelites, then you realize that they must be white. And then that's essentially the, the point of this point, right? Well, well, right. And and that there's this futurist school of, of um, prophecy that started with Jesuits in the Roman Catholic Church 600 years ago. And it was probably concocted by Converso Jews. The church was attempting to defend itself from against the charges of the reformers and it concocted these that these odd views of prophecy futurism and preterism in order to deflect the accusations of the reformers that the the roman catholic church was actually a beast it was a different beast than daniel's beast in daniel chapter 2 but it was a beast, and it was the beast of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13. And the reformers understood that. They understood the historical fulfillment of prophecy that we understand and, and that we profess. Well, the earliest Christian writers understood it. I, I believe it was Irenaeus. I'm, I'm fairly certain it was Irenaeus who had actually... Um, professed the understanding in his writing, and this is at Christogenia somewhere in one of my articles, that Daniel was actually, and that the Revelation were actually prophesying the fall of Rome. And, and the fall of Rome was not something that was readily evident when Irenaeus wrote in the second century AD, just shortly, just a couple of decades after Justin Martyr, perhaps about 180 AD. So this prophetic view of prophecy, that is a more traditional view, where this um, futurist view of prophecy that most of the denominational churches cling to to this very day is an innovation of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages and by converso Jews in the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Futurism is a lie. They look forward to the seven years of persecution of this super-duper, superhuman Antichrist. But the Jews are the Antichrist all along. They take this 70 weeks of Daniel and they claim that the 70th week isn't until far into the future. Well, the 70th week happened right after the 69th week. And, and we're not going to get into the chronology of Daniel chapter 9, but he did precisely prophesy the coming of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9, the date. And that's how, that's exactly how in the New Testament you see people the, the Samaritan woman at the well, who was actually an Israelite, and the apostles themselves were anticipating the coming of a Messiah at that time because they understood Daniel's prophecy. That's a digression. That, that's another long story that we can't do tonight. But 
there is a messianic prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which is the only messianic prophecy that explicitly mentions a Messiah, an anointed one. Now, a lot of prophecies in Isaiah foretell of a Savior to come, but they don't use that word Messiah. And Daniel explicitly dates the time of his coming. And, and this we shall read from verse 21. After the Persians had conquered Babylon, and, and this is evident in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, when he wrote this, right? After the Persians had conquered Babylon, in 539 BC, Daniel was praying and making supplications for Jerusalem, knowing that the 70 years prophecy of Jerusalem's desolation, which is found in Jeremiah, was coming to a close, right? It was winding down. So Daniel understood that, and he was praying for Jerusalem. And he wrote in, and I'll skip ahead to verse 21, yeah, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man, the angel, but an angel is a man, even the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, not to fly through the air necessarily, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, these are the reasons given here by the word of Yahweh for the coming of a Messiah, that for the people of Israel and the old city of Jerusalem, these things would happen. So the fate of the city would follow, that follows in, in the verses to come, but the reasons concerning the children of Israel are given first, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy. This is why Paul of Tarsus explains that from the time of Christ, and this is in Hebrews chapter 1, from the time of Christ, that there would be no more prophets. That in times past, God spoke to us, through the prophets, but now he speaks to us through the Son. After the revelation, there is no more prophet. And if you don't find any prophecy that Christianity would be brought to other races in these ancient prophets, then you're not going to find one. Because the purpose of Christ was to seal up the vision and the prophecy. He's the last prophet, period and to anoint the most holy. The children of Israel became known as Christians, the anointed ones. It's not merely followers of Christ. Christians 
are the anointed people. People anointed by God. Sin is, is transgression. That word holy separate again? I'm sorry. Well well, okay. This word for holy is Kodesh in Hebrew, and that has the same connotations as the word hagios in Greek. It's something that's separated and devoted to the purposes of God. Kodesh means apartness, sacredness, separateness. Sin is transgression of the law. Transgression is the reason why the children of Israel were cast off into captivity. Only Israel could sin as only Israel had the law. Reconciliation can only be made with those with whom there was a relationship in the first place. And this reconciliation is for them alone. Righteousness is what Yahweh had promised Israel in the words of other prophets. For example, we read in Jeremiah chapter 33, shortly after that promise of the new covenant, in verse 7, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all of their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. So this prophecy in Daniel is the same as that prophecy in Jeremiah, and both of them are related to that promise of a new covenant or a Messiah. Another example is found in Isaiah chapter 45. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but just parts of it from verse 17. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Well, the Messiah was the purpose of that salvation and the vehicle through which the salvation came. And there are other reasons for that, which are not entirely evident related to the law and the fact that Israel was condemned under the law unless, as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 7, unless the husband died. So Christ died to save Israel from their sins by releasing Israel from the law. But he promised in Hosea to betroth himself to those same children of Israel once again. So there are other threads of prophecy that explain different aspects of the same thing. And in order to create that tapestry, that woven, interwoven, agreeably full picture of all these things, that matrix, if you will, all of these prophecies have to be understood. Not just one thread, but all the other threads agree. So, Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Now, Isaiah is writing this chapter, and we'll talk about Isaiah in, in our next presentation in this series. Isaiah is writing this chapter long after the children of Israel were taken into captivity. He's writing this after that these last chapters, after the captivities were, for the most part, completed. Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not under the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. 
Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God, an idol, that cannot save. And that phrase, ye that are escaped of the nations, refers to the children of Israel who had survived the captivities and migrated out of the places to which they were forcibly resettled. Then later on in that same chapter, in verse 22, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, because the children of Israel were to be pushed to the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. And finally, in verse 25, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So Daniel is connecting to this coming Messiah, the promises of reconciliation and justification made to the children of Israel, which are found in the earlier prophets. Daniel here spells out the precise purpose of the Messiah, and no other purpose can be attributed to him if it is not spelled out in the prophets. As Christ himself said that he came not to destroy the prophets, but to fulfill the things which they had said. So now, concerning the time when the Messiah would appear, which we won't really get into, and, and the fate of the city, from verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince, now, there were several commandments to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The last was received by Ezra about 458 B.C. And when Jerusalem was finally rebuilt, because the walls were built by Nehemiah, but the city, even after the walls were built, had very few buildings in it. So Ezra rebuilt the city. The final commission is 458 B.C. And when we understand when Ezra had finally initiated that rebuilding, and we count 70 weeks or 70 prophetic weeks of years, because a day in prophecy is actually a year, 490 years, and it's really... 69 weeks, which is 483 years, plus the middle of one more week, which is 486 and a half years. When we understand that Ezra began rebuilding Jerusalem a year or so after he received his commission and count 486 and a half years, we come to within one year, because none of our chronologies are perfect to within one year of the crucifixion, one year of the crucifixion, or about, according to my chronologies, the spring of 32 AD, that the um, ministry of the Christ, having started three and a half years before that, in 28 AD, 28 AD to the... Perhaps it was 31 and a half AD. I forget my own chronology, right? 
but three and a half years to the crucifixion, the midst of the week, that final 70th week, during which was his ministry. So 486 years or 60, 483 years or 69 weeks from the time the city is finally going to be rebuilt until the beginning of his ministry brings us right to around from 456 B.C. to 28 A.D. or, or from 457 B.C. because there's no year zero. We have to add a year to, to 28 A.D. is 486 years or, or roughly thereabouts. And I don't have all the exact precise numbers in my head, right? But there's a paper, Christogenia, called Notes Concerning Daniel's 70 Weeks Prophecy, and I'll link it at the end of this presentation, which explained it all precisely. So, it'll be seven weeks and three score in two weeks. That's 69 weeks of years. That's 483 years. The city, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times, and after the three score in two weeks, shall the, the second part of the 69 years, Shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself? So Daniel is predicting that the Messiah is going to be cut off or killed. Not for himself, but for the people he was killed, right? So Daniel's prophesying that. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. Unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, mainstream commentators, all the mainstream Bible commentators, all of these mainstream denominational Christians are Judaized. They have all learned their Christianity from Jews, and none of it's right. None of it. I mean, they get some of the obvious things right, that they could repeat what they read in the Bible. They might be able to, re to tell you what emperor is ruling or simple stuff like that. But they can't tell you much more. So they make a lot of hay about little details and squabble about tiny little details, but they can't tell you the story. They're all Judaized. And they try to make this prince of the people who would destroy the city as a separate prince from Messiah the prince that Daniel mentions here. But it's not a separate prince. They are the same prince. Separating them into two different individuals actually defies the natural meaning of the passage as well as the practical use of grammar. If I tell you that I'm going to go on a vacation and I'm going to drive my Dodge truck, and, and then halfway through my vacation, I tell you that my truck broke down. Can you imagine any truck breaking down other than the Dodge that I set out with at the beginning of my vacation? Of course not. So where it says that Messiah the prince is going to become and cut off, and then it says that the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city, it's the same prince. The people of the prince are the Romans, and that proves that the people of the prince are the Romans. And we can show in history that the Romans did indeed come from the ancient East and, and from the Trojans, and the Trojans most likely came from the Israelites while they were in Egypt. 
And the Romans were among the people of God, as history demonstrates, and as the epistle of Paul of Tarsus to the Romans proves in many ways. Paul knew they were his people. The Jews are not the people of the prince. He denied them. And those who denied him by that time were substantially Edomites by 70 B.C., I'm sorry, by 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So now we will finish Daniel from this chapter, Daniel from verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, this isn't intended to be a full commentary on any of these passages. But as Christ told his adversaries, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. We have another verification of Daniel and his purpose. that And the city was destroyed, along with perhaps... 500,000 Judeans, but as many as 1.1 million Judeans in the war with the Romans from 65 to 70 AD. And that 500,000 number is from the Roman historian Tacitus, but the 1.1 million is from the Judean historian Josephus. So flip a coin, and, and it's probably the truth is somewhere in the middle. It doesn't matter. But that many were destroyed with the Romans from 65 to 70. That punishment came upon the desolate, those who denied Christ. And the city was destroyed. And it was destroyed in the very same time frame that Daniel said it would be destroyed. Yeah, and if you study the siege of Jerusalem, they, they absolutely tore it down wall by wall, moving in. And, and it took, I believe, was it two years? And they just butchered the entire population virtually. Right. Them. And, and I sincerely believe that that Western wall that the Jews in Palestine worship today and that all the prominent American politicians fly to Israel just to put their lips to, that wall was, pro what was almost certainly a construction of the Muslims in the 7th or 8th centuries A.D., that, that wall is not an original wall. That Welling Wall was actually a Muslim construction. That's my opinion. And, and there are even many archaeologists that had that opinion. That they'll probably be called anti-Semites, right? <laughs> if they say that. Yeah, right. Because the Jews actually want to believe that that wall is from the original walls of the city or the original temple or, or whatever. And, and they worship the wall. And, yeah, and it's all it's for just show. Part of the deception. Yes, it's all part of the deception. It's all for show. They worship that wall, but their real wall is on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> or the walls around the old city of London. <laughs> well, I mean, that's yeah. enough for this evening. It's already over two hours. That's okay. Yeah, that was a great uh, uh, kind of brief uh, run-through of the major prophets, right? Um, I mean, there's still Isaiah, but, but these are like really key points that when people understand and comprehend it, there's no other way that we can't be the Israelites, right? 
Well, well, right, absolutely. That there's no other way, or or the whole Bible's a lie that was somehow fulfilled. How, how could you have it both ways? If the Bible's true, then the people, the Christian people of, of Europe, must be the descendants of the children of Israel, and and the promised many nations which which came from the seed of Abraham. Now, not every European is an Israelite, of course, but the Bible tells us as does history, what nations were here before them. The Japhethite nations and, and the other Shemitic nations that were in Europe before them. And all these modern nations that only appear later in history are certainly the descendants of the children of Israel. And, and you can't have... Yeah, we're all the people of the prince, right? Right, and and you can't have one half of the prophets being true and the other half being a lie without denying that God is true. If you accept God, you have to accept these prophets. If you accept Christ, you must accept the prophets because Christ professed the prophets. He quoted from all these prophets, every single one of them, and called it the word of God. So if you're a Christian, you have to accept this. Otherwise, you better come up with some other logical explanation as to how none of this is true, but Christ is still real. You can't take one and discard the other, which is what mainstream denominational Christians have also been taught. Yeah, they're double-minded, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they're absolutely double-minded. And the Jews have taught them their Christianity. That's why they're double-minded. How could Christ tell the Jews, you're not my sheep, and that's why you don't believe me, and, and, and Christians still turn around and get their understanding of Christianity from Jews? How could that be? I'll tell you how it is, because the word of God said that Satan was going to deceive the people in, in the last days, deceive all the nations. And that's exactly what's happened. But mainstream Christians would never admit that that's them that are deceived. People don't like to be convicted of their own stupidity. They become offended very easily. That's the way it is. But in the end, every knee shall bow. No doubt. Thank you, yep, Truth Rids. I look forward to that day. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. That was and, great, thanks. And, and we'll see you in two weeks, because next week we're going to take a hiatus. Yep, no problem. All right. Uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel and European people. Thanks, Bill. Praise Yahweh. Good night.